0: Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, a podcast engineered by Fractal Recording and produced by me, your host, Laura Shin, a Forbes contributor covering cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Thanks for tuning in. I am running a survey on Unchained. If you haven't already, please fill it out to get a say on what topics the show should cover, which guests we should have on and whatever other improvements you'd like to suggest. You can make your voice heard at surveymonkey.com r Unchained or find the link in the show description of this episode. Again, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash Unchained. And thank you to all of you who have submitted really fantastic suggestions so far. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, please share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or with any friends or colleagues who might be interested in the show. Also, please rate, review, or subscribe to Unchained on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That helps get word out about the show. I'd like to extend a big thank you to our sponsor, OnRamp. Branding isn't just a logo. Your brand is the essence of who you are and what you offer your customers. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that provides its clients with concise and exceptionally designed branding, websites, and marketing materials that will resonate with your audience, affect its purchase decisions, and ultimately grow your business. You can learn more at thinkonramp.com. Today, I have two guests. The first is William Mugayar general partner at Virtual Capital Ventures, an early-stage venture capital fund, founder of Startup Management and author of The Business Blockchain. William is also a board member of OB1 and a board advisor to the Ethereum Foundation. Joining him is Nick Chimano, principal at early-stage venture fund Runa Capital and author of the blog and email newsletter, The Control, which is about token-based blockchain protocols. Welcome, William and Nick.
1: How's it going? Hi, Laura.
0: William, let's start with you. Tell us what your background was before you got into the space and how you stumbled onto cryptocurrency.
2: Sure. Uh, I've been in technology for close to 35 years, the first 14 years being at HP, Hewlett Packard. And in 95, I left HP to dive into the internet. And I was doing uh, very much uh, similar things to what I'm doing now, which is to write about it. I wrote two books at the time and I used to do a lot of speaking engagements and was involved with uh, startups uh, that were early in the internet days. Uh, More recently, uh, I did two startups, uh, sold the last one in 2012, and then discovered the Bitcoin world. And how did you discover it? (laughs) Via Fred Wilson's blog initially. And the first time I saw it, I was still too busy with my startup you at the time. So and I kind of and ignored just for it. people
0: who don't know, that's Fred Wilson, who is one of the VCs at Union Square Ventures.
2: Yes. And then as soon as we uh, we sold Engageo, uh, then I had a, a bit more liberty to doing whatever I wanted. And I was lucky that I was living in Toronto. I am still living in Toronto. And this is where uh, Vitalik Buterin, the inventor of Ethereum, is from, and I uh, got exposed to him and met him uh, when he was writing his his paper and When I started to read the paper and talk to Vitalik, it dawned on me very quickly that this thing was really going to get not just big but important um, i I saw very um, quickly the fact that this was a paradigm shift in terms of how software applications were going to be written and and that this was something that could be as significant as the internet 20 years ago. And for the first time, uh, specifically, the fields of uh, cryptography, uh, the fields of peer-to-peer technologies uh, and and, uh, decentralized uh, methodologies were all coming together uh, for the first time and working in harmony. So it wasn't just about sending money peer to peer. It was more that this was a new paradigm that was going to allow uh, engineers, software engineers, to write applications in new fundamental ways. So it was really a technology that was disrupting technology. Uh, That's how I described it in, in my book. But the same way with the internet and the web, it was a new technology that was disrupting the previous paradigm of client server and,
0: and and what does that mean client server
2: client server was is 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 the way that applications used to be written before the web, meaning that there there is a a computer, a server that would uh, be uh, uh, serving the uh, the resources and the computational power to uh, programmers that would uh, be on their client. So, the web brought a new paradigm which was still within the client server paradigm, but it it used new technologies the java technologies um, and the browser technologies and the fact that the clients became more smart and more powerful so with the With the blockchain, we are doing another iteration of that model where the resources are not just in on servers, but they are in the cloud, which means that they are all over um, the globe. There could be thousands of nodes that are uh, spread out. So you can think of the, the blockchain from a technological perspective as another evolution of cloud computing, but that uh, has a very strong peer-to-peer component, which means that uh, it is not just for the corporate world, but it is really brought into the, for the reach of anybody. So anybody can have a node. Anybody can, can be part of the infrastructure. And, and that's a new paradigm uh, that, that, that we are just entering right now.
0: So Nick, tell us a little bit about yourself. What was your background before getting into cryptocurrency? And how did you end up working in the industry?
1: Sure. So, um before um I joined Coinbase, I was in business school actually, um, on the East Coast. And um actually, I guess before that is when I really discovered Bitcoin similar to to William and, and and most people, um you know, I heard about it on the internet. And I think I you know, the first thing I read about it was the the famous Wired article in 2011, The Rise and Fall of Bitcoin that described Um, How Bitcoin kind of you know grew from nothing to um, over you know thirty dollars per coin and then crashed back down. And so I think, like a lot of people, I was kind of drawn in by um, you know the the speculation and the discussions of of, you know Silk Road and things like that. But quickly, I you know fell down the rabbit hole and uh, started. Uh, engaging online in different communities, um, the main one being the Bitcoin subreddit. And then in, in 2013, when I uh, right when I started business school is when I kind of decided that I wanted to, to make a career out of it. And so in 2013, I basically talked to as many different entrepreneurs in the space as I possibly could. Um, and a lot of the entrepreneurs that I talked to then are now either you know, in jail or uh, just not around anymore. Um, But uh, (laughs) so that was kind of um, interesting and kind of told me where the space was. Um, I think that's kind of the people element of this industry. I think it is massively undervalued. And there's a lot of kind of excitement about, you know, about funding and prices and but um, a lot of people don't take, ta- take the time to sit down and like talk with the people that are kind of working in this space. And that's kind of what I did in 2013 and identified uh, Brian Armstrong as kind of the most credible founder by far um, in the space. And so quickly, um, you know, ended up working for Coinbase while going to business school for uh, about nine months and then moved out to, to California from New Haven, Connecticut and have been out here ever since. So that was kind of And how you I got were working
0: started. you were working in Bizdev at Coinbase. Yeah, I did,
1: uh, a lot of different things in the early days. So I I joined kind of working remotely when there were about 5 employees and you know doing things like uh, managing the the Twitter account and most of the kind of external communications on the blog things like that and also kind of in the early days a lot of the merchant outreach.
0: Great. And then when did you leave and um, and go to Runa Capital, and also, when did you launch the control?
1: So I left uh, about a year ago um, to to join Runa, and launched the control um, about four months ago now. So right at the the beginning of of the year.
0: And what prompted you to launch the control?
1: I think it's still very early in the space, and there's a lot of education that needs to be done, and so. Um, you know, I was writing a lot of our stuff at Coinbase. You know, in the early days, and I think you know Coinbase has done and continues to do a really good job making the technology kind of relatable to non-super uh, technical people. And I think there's a lot more uh, of that um, that can be done. And so that kind of prompted me to, you know, to launch the control. And it's kind of a reason also that we're, uh, you know, we're working on, on token summit and things like that. And I think, you know, I also think you kind of do, um, one of the best jobs, uh, of any in the, uh, you know, in the journalism world of covering the space. I think there's still not a, a ton of good, uh, journalism. And so that's kind of, um, the control allows me to one stay kind of, uh, in the space um, as much as I can, as like a side project while also uh, investing at RUNA.
0: Yeah, because RUNA does not invest in this space, is that correct?
1: I wouldn't say we do not invest in the space. We're actively um, interested in this space, but we are a Series A um, venture fund. And the reality is there's not, uh, there have not been a ton of uh, Series A uh, opportunities for companies with real business traction. And, you know, within RUNA, I'm a big believer in the space. But, you know, other than me, there's not uh, someone who is just, you know, really excited about the future.
0: Okay. So I actually want to devote most of this episode to discussing the token trend and ICOs and um, all things of that ilk. Um, And I've discussed this topic with multiple guests in different ways since last summer. Um, some of the previous episodes that touch on this were um, an episode I did with Jerry Brito and Peter Van Balkenberg of Coin Center, um, another one I did somewhat recently with Olaf Carlson we of Polychain Capital, who is also a, a former Coinbase employee, and Brock Pierce of Blockchain Capital and Sam marashnik of the Argonne Group. And for listeners, I'll link to these past episodes in the show notes. But I would like to discuss the trend in depth with both of you, since, William, you're organizing the token summit that Nick mentioned, um, and that's in New York on May 24th and 25th. And Nick, you're also a co-host for that event. Um, Why did you decide to launch the summit? Like, very broadly, how would you describe kind of like what is happening now and how it's different from what we've previously seen in the crypto space?
2: Sure. I felt uh, late last year in 2016 that there was a need to dive more specifically into the world of the token-based Economy, which is something that Nick and I kind of um, talk about, and I felt that uh, there was so much activity going on in the space that uh, I wanted to bring um, um, all of the the top players, uh, mostly the entrepreneurs and the investors, and and uh, the whole sector basically that was at the forefront of this. this new sector, which is one of the sectors of the blockchain, together. And how
0: do you describe this to people? Like, you know, when you are trying to explain to someone who isn't really familiar with what's happening, what do you say?
2: What I'm saying here, what we are saying here, is that the uh, the cryptocurrency is really was really the, is the first application of the blockchain. So that gave us Bitcoin, and it gave us Ethereum and, and many other cryptocurrencies. Uh, But that's only one element. What's really interesting, the the real uh, interest here is the intersection of the cryptocurrency with the business model. So when you hear about all of these new tokens or cryptocurrencies that are being raised right now, uh, I'm not so excited about having new currencies and new tokens per se, but I am more excited when I hear of a new business model that is enabled by the token or by the cryptocurrency. So I'm gonna use the words uh, token and cryptocurrency interchangeably um, because they kind of are very similar, very very similar thing. So I am more excited about how a given token, which is a kind of currency, is going to enable us, users, uh, society, government, whoever, to do things that we could not do before and, and, and that's the frontier that I think we're barely scratching the surface on right now. And what's an example of something that it will
0: enable us to do that wasn't possible before?
2: So, so for example, if you take the, uh, doing the uh, reputation markets uh, where you vote with a token. So the token could be, could be um, representative of an ownership for, for the user. And, and this is something we could not do before, uh, at least not, not very easily. So the, the token is, is, is like a tool uh, for, for the user that can be used as part of the application. Um, there are other examples where the token is something that a user earns by giving their attention. So if you spend time, let's say, on a, on a site like Steemit, where you are writing some content and the content is being upvoted or it's being liked it's being shared Uh, as you do that you are earning tokens which you can uh, not just earn but you can spend so what's going on here i'm interested in in exploring how mini economies which i call circular economies get formed where a user is earning tokens and is able to spend those tokens at the same time in the same setting. So if I'm earning tokens because of uh, users are, are giving me attention, I can spend those same tokens to maybe boost my content or to uh, to promote it or to, to, to buy services in that marketplace. So that's kind of the more exciting uh, element. Uh, and there will be many examples um, like that in the past. In if if just to give you an analogy, uh, governments used to issue money. So we are used to governments issuing sovereign money and currency, whether it's the dollar or the pound or the euro and so on. But in the future, companies are going to be issuing their own currency. Uh, and the currency that the companies will issue uh, is going to have to be tied in to their products, to their services. So the next trend I'm seeing is not just startups and companies that are issuing the token um, and starting something new, but we're going to see established companies that already have millions of users uh, issuing tokens as well, and and then linking that token with an existing usage uh, that already is taking place, but giving it a boost and and allowing the uh, users uh, to uh, To earn uh, currency via their actions uh, via their attention via their data uh, via the fact that they have an ownership of sorts, whether they have a right to do something it could be a vote it could be an opinion it could be an action so we 're going to see a variety uh, of these types of uh, functions so um, th- that 's really the incentive for the token summit. I want to explore uh, all of these different uh, uh, ideas and models and functionality of the token. So the token is like a utility.
0: Yeah. And the reason that these developers or companies are not using an existing cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or Ether is because they want to be able to control the incentives within their little mini economy or their circular economy. Is that is that
2: the reason? That, that's one of the reasons. So these cryptocurrencies are their own. So they are like proxies to the uh, to the back-end uh, currencies. Like right now, the back-end currencies, in my opinion, are either Ether or Bitcoin proper. Um, so they are like the backbone of the, of the crypto world. Uh, what's interesting, if, if you have your own currency, you can have your own governance. So each currency now becomes their own kind of mini government per se maybe government is a big word it's really it's it's a body that is governed uh, in a decentralized manner where users have a say uh, where there is oversight and there is transparency Um, so these companies are are issuing uh, these currencies so so that we can uh, so they can have their own governance Models, but also another reason is because it's real money, so they are using this as a funding mechanism as well, and and hopefully we'll talk about that in the segment. Yeah, Uh, because there's goods and bads about it. That there's some good elements about the fact that uh, it it becomes a new funding mechanism, Uh, but the caution here is that I'm seeing uh, some some projects getting funded just because it's easier to raise money with a, with a crowdsourced uh, manner by raising a, a token.
0: Yeah, I actually, I do want to dive into that um, in a big way. <laughs> um, but before we do that, um, I just kind of want to give readers a perspective on just how big this trend is, or, or readers, listeners. Um, I did a little bit of math, and um, I think it's like, and, and tell me if, if you have a different number, but I think it's north of 350 million so far that have been raised in these initial coin offerings. Um, is that roughly
2: your estimate? Uh, yes, we're, that's pretty close to uh, yes. Between last year, 2016, and more or less the first quarter of 2017, we're, we're close to that number. I had predicted uh, originally just two months ago that we would reach 600 million in 2017 and I am pretty sure that we're going to exceed that number. Uh, Wait, raised only
0: in 2017 or for all? 17, yeah, uh, Including 26, oh wow, okay.
2: Oh yeah, I think we're gonna reach a billion dollars very easily. Uh, There are some big raises that are coming on the horizon that I cannot talk about yet, not announced yet, but they will be announced in in the May and June timeframes and for the rest of the 2017 year. Uh, some companies are getting ambitious. So I wouldn't be surprised if we reached $1 billion in money raised via new cryptocurrency offerings uh, in that year alone. And what other
0: stats really stick out to you as the most eye-opening?
2: Almost on a daily basis, there is a new one. So uh, so this is almost... I mean, right now, we are able to, to monitor them and count them, but there will come a point where... It's going to be like another startup has been founded, so like big deal. So, if you look at the traditional venture capital world, there are hundreds of startups being founded on a daily basis on a global basis. So, founding a startup and getting and raising money is not a big deal anymore. There are VC companies that don't even announce any more fundings because it's it's a It's a, okay, so what uh, uh, kind of uh, event. What's more important is what's getting done with the money. So I wouldn't be surprised that uh, at some point in time, uh, it, it won't be news anymore that a company is raising $10 million or $12 million via a token offering.
0: Okay, yeah, I, I also feel like uh, this trend is, uh, is um, moving in that direction, uh, at, least, at least for now. We'll see. Um, but let's hold that thought and go to an important word from our sponsor, OnRamp. The best companies in the world obsess about branding. Killer branding will transcend your company and strategically and competitively position you in the market. Done well, a remarkable brand will affect buyers and their purchase decisions and give your organization a voice that sets you up for long-term success. OnRamp is a full-service creative agency that helps its clients maximize brand awareness, gain market momentum, and accelerate growth. Whether it's branding an identity for a new startup, redesigning an existing website to generate traffic and leads, or executing a custom design project or marketing strategy, OnRamp will get your organization strategically poised for the future. You can learn more and see examples of its work at thinkonramp.com. I'm speaking with William Muguiar, General Partner at Virtual Capital Ventures, and Nick Tomeno, Principal at Early Stage Venture Fund, Runa Capital, and Founder of The Control, both of whom are hosting the Token Summit on May 24th and 5th. Um, so let's quickly run through some of the details around tokens. Um, who are the people launching them? What is the process for launching them? What structures, uh, what, what kinds of entities are they, they creating to, to launch them, et cetera? What, just run through that quickly
1: yeah so I would say that this this is kind of rapidly evolving, and it's still very early in in how these um, these entities are uh, forming and I would really I think you know people call them companies, and the the analog in the traditional world is a company, but they're really not companies um, and I think it's best to think of them as decentralized autonomous organizations where there's um, an, an entrepreneur and a founding team. But there's no legal entity and there's uh, a number of different participants um, that play different roles in kind of bringing this entity to, to the world. But I, I really think of, of these uh, structures as Internet tribes um, and they're kind of they're tribes that that are focused on different use cases and have different beliefs. But at the end of the day, there are collections of, of people from all over the world that own a, a, a token and have ownership in a product and kind of want to bring the product to the world. Um, so that's kind of how I view what, what's happening. I think the problem right now that's happening is there's, uh, you know, if you, the, the over 350 million in funding over the past 12 months, uh, the vast majority of these projects are getting funding before there's an actual product. And if you look at like the, the past 10 years in, in startups broadly outside of like the blockchain world, pretty much every company that has raised a lot of money pre-product has failed. Uh, some of the, the famous examples are Clinkle, which uh, was a mobile payments company that raised 25 million before a product in seed funding and disappeared in two years color and and airtime are other examples of this that raise kind of massive rounds before an actual product. And I think right now um, the the token sales are being, like William said, are kind of uh, in a lot of cases being used as uh, funding first. And I think this model over time will change. And uh, we're already seeing it change to some extent where uh, a founding team is raising a small seed round Um, from more traditional investors um, getting to a product and then doing a token sale to give uh, users access to the product. And this is kind of uh, again, it's still very early and we haven't seen kind of best practices for how these uh, organizations are structured. But this is kind of how I see a best practice playing out uh, in the future.
2: Yeah, that's true, Nick. Uh, So there is no right or wrong way to do the token sale. It could be before the product is ready. It could be after. It could be uh, before funding from a traditional VC or or after. And the way I've uh, divided the phases, to answer your question, Laura, is uh, I see four phases. There is the launch. But in this case, the launch is really the launch of the of the token itself or of the funding, if that is the case. Then there's a development. In many cases, the funding will allow the development to take place, the software development. And that could take one or two years. And in that development phase, I, I'm referring to the third phase, which is it goes into a darkness period. So we don't really know what, it, what goes on. Um, despite transparency attempts from the startup. Because at the end of the day, uh, these companies are like startups, whether they are a protocol or a in distributed organization or um, an organization with a new product, uh, they, they are really like a startup. So you cannot escape the startup characteristics, which means that it takes a while Uh, for the product to become more mature. It takes a while to acquire users. It takes a while to iterate on the actual vision that you have because nobody is right from the beginning. Time will tell really what happens. And then the last phase is really the rollout, which is the market entry. And that could be a year or two years and sometimes three years after uh, the the initial uh, funding
0: Okay. Yeah, I actually, Nick, when you were saying that, um, oftentimes, uh, in the or in history, we've seen that companies that raise a lot of money initially, before they have a product tend to fail. I I wondered how that compares to Kickstarter and those types of things where um, oftentimes they did kind of, you know, dream up some vision for something and then get a lot of people on board and crowdfund. Do you have any stats on that on how successful it's been in the crowdfunding world?
1: I know the, I mean, the failure numbers, I don't know them uh, off the top of my head exactly on Kickstarter, but they're relatively high. And I think, you know, Kickstarter's done a lot to improve this o- over the years. And so I'm sure that it's kind of trending in the right direction. But yeah, I think, you know, Kickstarter is a good model to look to in, in terms of kind of getting funding on an idea. Um, and that hasn't played out well for, for Kickstarter.
0: Okay. All right. And then just nuts and bolts for listeners who aren't familiar yet with uh, these token sales, what is typically the process for buying these tokens? Like if I'm a novice and I have a little bit of Bitcoin or Ether, maybe like a Coinbase or something, and and that's it, and I see some token sale I want to invest in, what do I do?
1: All you do, and and this is why it's it's happening so quickly around the world, is uh, Ethereum makes it dead simple to do a, a token sale. All you do is is create a um, a smart contract and have people anyone in the world send ether to an Ethereum address. Um, kind of at a very high simple level, that's what you do. So you have um, you know ether in a Coinbase wallet or, or whatever wallet you have, and you send uh, a certain amount of ether um, to uh, an address, and in return you get uh, to- a given token for. Whatever the project is, so it's, it's
0: and and then strict- where do I hold those tokens like if I receive them, I'm holding them where on where? At, at what address
1: in the address that you sent from
0: oh okay, so you, you can hold um, this new token in in the same ethereum address
1: yes, and by the way, I wouldn't do this from a coinbase uh, wallet because um, at least now from what I from what I know. Um, they're not supporting sub tokens. Um, I think that will change in the future, but um, but yes, you send uh, from if you have a ledger wallet or uh, you know the Ethereum Mist client or whatever the the wallet is, you send the funds and you get uh, tokens, whatever the token is, in return.
0: Okay, so let's talk um more about investing um and before we do that let's caveat <laughs> uh this section with the statement that no one listening to this podcast should take anything that we are seeing here as an investment advice um i covered personal finance for a long time and can tell you that uh, if you want uh, advice on your <laughs> financial picture you need to talk to a certified financial planner who can look at kind of like everything in your life and figure out what your goals are and, and all that Given that, though, uh, there is kind of a lot to talk about from the investment angle. So, what is the investment thesis here? What gives a token value?
1: I, I, the way I see it, uh, there's two there's two types of tokens, and I think you know everyone has different frameworks. I think William um, ha- likely has a different framework than I do, but I, I really think there's there's two types of tokens that that make sense to me right now. One is called a usage token. And one is called a work token. So a usage token uh, is a token that um, is required to use a service. And I think, you know, the term protocol is used a lot. um, And I think I I think it gets overused. And I think, you know, at a high level, it's it's simpler to to think of these as services. And so Bitcoin is the, the best example of a usage token. Um, to use the Bitcoin payment network to send, you know, money anywhere, you need to own Bitcoin, and that's um, that's really what gives Bitcoin value: is the ability to be used in this uh, distributed ledger that anyone can participate in and no one controls. So, the usage token is is one type of token, and then the other is what I call a work token, and I think it's still very early in. Um, you know, in in work tokens, but um, kind of at a high level, a work token um, is a token that uh, users own, that gives them right to contribute work to the network and earn in in exchange for that work. And so an example here is um, reputation, which is the native token to Augur, the decentralized prediction market. And if you own Rep, you can uh, essentially be an Oracle um, in the system and earn fees, and so you're you're owning a token not uh, to to use a, a service, but instead to contribute work to a decentralized autonomous organization. And so, yeah, I'm sure kind of I'm sure William thinks about it uh, slightly differently than I do, but to me, those are kind of the two reasons that that tokens have value.
2: This is very good, Nick. No, I agree with uh, your classification. And actually, uh, I talk a lot about the work token, and I did that at my last TEDx. But aside from that, I think the way to uh, think of value uh, beyond the way that Nick describes it is really, at the end of the day, if you think about it, it's about adoption. So forget for a minute about all this kind of new jargon about usage and work and rights and and tokens really at the end of the day if there is no adoption by the users there's no value no matter what the vision is because all of these uh, companies or ico projects or or startups really they are they are all based on assumptions they are based on a hypothesis that um, if we issue a token, if we give certain rights to users, if we allow them to do this and that, then they will come and they will use it. But just like any other startup, if there is no usage, there's nothing. So there's a lot here uh, that rests on whether there will be engagement with the users, whether there will, will be a semblance of a network effect going on. Network effect means every time a user comes into the network, the value of the network increases. And, and this is something we've been used to for the last 10, 12 years with the, the Internet. But now it's another version of network effects where the users are part of the infrastructure. So the users are all kind of supporting the infrastructure of the network uh, because they are a node on the network.
0: But right now, when, like, so many new tokens are launching every day, like when networks haven't really been built out, how does a potential investor decide between them? Is it just, you know, you try to invest in as many as possible and hope that <laughs> that if you went out and even if the rest fail, you still make some money? Or, I mean, how, how do you do that? Or, or do you just wait until the
2: networks get built? Or No, I mean, it's not any different than investing in startups. You have to have a hunch a um, gut feeling for for the team, for the idea, for the product, and and then you support them. So,
0: I mean, is there anything kind of more quantitative than a hunch that you can offer it, people? It's really,
2: it's really experience. I mean, people think that I, I am seeing so many um, ICO projects now that want to reinvent everything. So, one of the trends is that we are moving off. uh, We're moving off centralized services. So the other big umbrella theme here behind all of this is there's going to be a decentralized version of everything you can think about, starting with Facebook. So there is like a half a dozen companies now that want to do a decentralized Facebook or decentralized Reddit. Steemit is one of them and there are five others. Companies are doing decentralized whatever, decentralized banking, so uh, banking without a bank, uh, or Uber without Uber, or um, a stock exchange without the exchange, because it's decentralized exchanges from peer to peer directly. So uh, there is validity in the fact that there will be a lot of decentralized services that will emerge, and some of them will replace the centralized flavor.
0: But if I'm trying to figure out where to put my money, then how do I decide between one ICO versus another?
2: So,
1: Laura, I've got a perspective on this. I think, um, like, ICO is a a misnomer generally, like, because it, it, it evokes IPO. And to your question about, like, how do you decide when you're investing in an IPO, there's a lot of data that you can decide, right? The company's been around for presumably many years and it has revenue and, you know, all sorts of traction that you can look to. In this case, it's it's often a founder um, with an idea and a, a, a website. And, you know, William is talking about, you know, you, you decide like you do early stage startups, which is right, but um, most, People are thinking about this as deciding, like investing, like an IPO um, in startups. The most important thing is the people, and the reality is, like most people don't have the time to meet the the founders uh, of these projects, and so are. So, does that mean,
0: like, the crowd really shouldn't be investing in this space? Then, no, I wouldn't say
1: I wouldn't say that um, because I think you know being inclusive is. Um, is one of the kind of the fundamental uh, principles of this space. And so, uh, but I think maybe the crowd shouldn't be investing before there's execution risk, meaning, um, you know, when there's a product, I think uh, it makes a lot of sense for teams to give users the product. But I question whether the crowd should really be, be investing, um, you know, pre product when um, in most cases, they're not doing a, a lot of diligence. Ethereum is the best counterexample to this, right? They raise, um, you know, 16 or 18 million um, before a product and they've executed uh, phenomenally. And um, there's certainly kind of counterexamples to uh, to my uh, belief, but I would Bet that Ethereum is more of an outlier than kind of the, the norm moving forward.
0: And what about examples where the network launches right when the crowd sale happens? How to how do you categorize that?
1: That uh, like an example maybe Zcash. Um, I think you know that's a, a, an interesting model because when the crowd launch, when the the product launches, um, that's when you give access to you know, to people. And I think, um, yeah, a model like Zcash is a good one rather than raising, um, you know, $15 million before you have anything. Um, and I think that will over time be proven to be, uh, the, the healthy model for the space.
0: So another thing I was wondering about is sometimes these networks seem to have good business ideas. Um, or, or maybe um, not so good business. It really depends. Um, but then that kind of uh, analysis is separate from whether or not the token makes a good investment um, because uh, in that instance, then there's a lot of other factors involved like how are they distributing the token or how is the token used in this system or um, just other things. So how should potential investors kind of uh differentiate between those two things or uh, or assess those factors.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's why it's not all about just like getting traction. You have to be thoughtful about like what the token actually represents. Um and it's why I think uh, kind of a framework for thinking about um you know, is it a usage token? Is it a work token? Um maybe and I'm sure there'll be other types of tokens that emerge, but yeah, the uh the crypto economics if you will, uh is really important. And I think it's still super early in 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 you know, crypto crypto economics generally, but there's a, a lot of really smart people that are thinking about this. Um that's part of the reason I'm so excited about Token Summit is um there there hasn't really been um an event where uh, most of the kind of leading minds that are thinking about these things are are in one room talking about uh, you know, things like crypto economics. So
2: another another factor, Laura, for investing is, is having a thesis. So uh, w- one way that investors uh, make decisions is they have a thesis that they believe in, which is a particular view of where the world is going. And that, I mean, if you believe in it, and then when you start to see companies that fit the model that you envision in your own mind after your own analysis, then you start to say, well, this is the kind of company that I'd like to support because I believe in this particular field. So it could be decentralized content. So if you believe that content is going to be owned by uh, the users themselves and that the publishing and and the way it gets it gets uh, distributed is going to be more decentralized as opposed to centralized then you would invest in such companies or if you believe that that uh, storage like computer storage or computing infrastructure is going to be more decentralized uh, and if you believe that uh, users will be able to rent uh, a small part of their computers let's say on a on a distributed manner and earn a few cents or dollars here and there. And now we're seeing each sector is seeing now two or three players, like the example I just gave. uh, There's a company called Storage, there's a company called SIA, S-I-A, and there's a company called Filecoin. They're all kind of vying around the same area of uh, cloud, Storage, so so that's kind of one example. If you believe in that, you would invest in it. Uh, there will be cloud computing resources that will be going um, kind of towards the blockchain, like Gollum and, and others, and and so these are kind of like some sectors that are emerging uh, based on, on on a belief of a particular vision uh, that an investor might have.
0: So I want to jump back to something that Nick mentioned briefly, which is um, he was talking about. Um, Well, you know, as I mean, he referenced it and we actually discussed a little bit um, how some of these developers are launching crowd sales before they have a product. Um, And one of the more extreme examples of of this recently was the Gnosis crowd sale, which sold twelve point five million dollars worth of tokens in less than 15 minutes. Um, And they only sold like five percent of tokens. And so at at the price sold that gave this reputation market evaluation of three hundred million dollars, which is pretty um, ridiculous, frankly <laughs> um, so what do you guys make of something like this? What kind of lessons can we learn from this?
2: Well, the way I explain this is that the, 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 there is some financial engineering going on here, and the the token issuers are getting very creative. Uh, because there, is, there are no best practices. There's no right formula yet. So uh, there's lots of iterations and variations. So, so this particular one was very creatively done. And um, I mean, theoretically, you could say that the valuation was 300 million because so many tokens exist and, and the ones that were issued are worth so much. But again, this is all uh, very assumptive, very, 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 we're just assuming that this is going to be the case. So the proof is going to be in in going to the market and getting users and getting a product to the market. Now, in the meantime, uh, the markets are speculating on this, and and this in return is is funding is funding these companies. So uh, I don't mind a little bit of speculation because it, it is helping to fund these projects.
0: But do you think that this indicates that there's kind of more, uh, like bubble activity happening? Cause a lot of projects have been raising money without, uh, you know, without going to this extreme, I would say.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there is going to be a, a point where, uh, the market will retract. So we, we are going to be pushing the envelope and pushing the boundaries to the limits, um, to the To the most extreme limits, and but if you go back in history of all of the major technological cycles, nothing really ever great was done without uh, some crash of some sort, uh, without some kind of irrational exuberance, without some kind of euphoria at some point in time. Uh, we have to push the envelope uh, beyond the possible and to think that the that we can reach the moon before we can just. Uh, realize what is possible and then things will grow again um so the crash of 99 2000 with back with the internet uh, back in the, the internet days yes it was bad in into itself but then later it it kind of paved the way for a a lot of prosperity uh that that followed
0: so right now there's kind of like a a wide spectrum of i would say Anything ranging from kind of like scams, um, like on the episode I did with Jerry and Peter of Coin Center, uh, they talked about PayCoin, which was an outright scam that the SEC pursued. Um, And then there's kind of like less easily detected ones like, you know, maybe the developers raise money, but they never really seem to launch anything. They're always just working on the project. Um, Do you... And I mean, frankly, like, it's kind of incredible to think like, oh, wow, they could just easily raise millions of dollars and just kind of fund their lives, but never really um, do anything uh, that, you know, they offer to their investors. So, uh, you know, short of regulation, is there anything that the, either the community can do now or that investors can do to avoid these types of situations?
1: I think it's just important to to push Uh, best practices. Um, And, you know, I agree with William that, um, you know, this speculative activity kind of fuels um, the the ecosystem and and it's natural to some extent. And I also think um, even from, you know, something like the Dow, which, you know, last year raised 150 million and uh, and quickly disappeared, you know, it it was a complete failure by all accounts. But even that led to something like the Ethereum hard fork, which I think was a a step forward uh, for the whole ecosystem because there had never been a hard fork in in a project that was so significant as Ethereum. And and it showed something new that could be done. Um, So I think there's like, there's a lot of learning to be done from even the failures, but I do think it's important to continue to be, um, you know, highlighting best practices and, you know, something like Gnosis, which, um, you know, it was the first experiment uh, of a Dutch auction in the space. I think, you know, not necessarily uh, a bad thing that they tried it. And I don't know. And can you just,
0: for listeners who don't know, can you just quickly describe a Dutch auction?
1: Yeah, it basically lets the market decide the valuation. Um, So um, the valuation is where, um, the complete allocation, which in this case was 12.5 million, wherever all the bids get filled. And so rather than kind of setting a valuation, it, it lets the market decide, um, the valuation. And in this case, the market, uh, was very excited about the project and decided that the valuation should be, you know, North of, of 300 million. Um, and that was kind of, that experiment hadn't been attempted before. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that it was attempted. And I don't know, you know, the intentions of the founders and whether it was, you know, greed or, or something else. But I think um, it, it's clear to me at least, and you know, again, this has only been, uh, it's still very new for, for, this is a couple of weeks old, but um, it's clear that a Dutch auction is likely not a, a best practice moving forward, but to, to come to that conclusion, we needed to, to see it happen before. Right. So and
0: what are some other things that you would recommend as part of best practices?
1: Um, I think, you know, I don't know all of them. I don't I, And these are just kind of my ideas. I think it's still very early. And I think that's part of what, um, you know, we're going to discuss with a lot of people that have actually done it before, um, at token summit. But to me, Um, You know, what I discussed earlier, I think, um, you know, raising uh, a small round prior to doing a big uh, crowd sale is is likely um, better long term than doing a, um, you know, a 10 million plus crowd sale before there's a product. Um, So to me, that's like, you know, one of the best practices. Another is, you know, is crowd ownership. So um, you know I was looking at the data the other day, um, and in the case of like gnosis the, the team you know the team only sold five percent roughly to the public, and I think uh, a best practice for for uh you know public ownership of a token is is more like uh you know sixty to eighty percent something like that so those are uh, I guess a few examples and um, you know i'm i don't claim to to know all of them
2: William. Do you have any to add? Yeah, actually, it's funny. I don't want to mention the token story too many times. We have a session specifically talking about best practices. And the ones that Nick has mentioned are really good ones as well. And again, this is nothing different than how a startup really um, takes shape. And there there is a conventional wisdom that more money, especially initially, does not mean it's, it's not necessarily better. Uh, So less money gives more discipline to teams. Uh, But from what I'm seeing, uh, discipline is not really um, the first thing that comes to mind here with a lot of these ICO projects. Many of them um, see this window and they want to swing for the fences and see it as a one-shot deal where they can raise money at once and, and then see what happens. Again, trying to emulate what Ethereum did. They raised a bunch of money and then they ran with it uh, but then luckily for them uh, there was there was a big vision behind it uh, and uh, everybody was rallying behind it but not every project is like ethereum not every project is like bitcoin uh, the, these are uh, the outliers or these are more the exceptions in the same way that in the startup world, not all companies are going to be Facebook's Facebook or Google or Amazon. Uh, These are giants that have become what they are today uh, because of many reasons and many characteristics that were very very unique to them. And and, uh, so, yeah, we we are going to see more of those big companies emerge uh, in the next two years. Uh, but uh, at the, again, at the end of the day, it doesn't look any different than what the startup ecosystem I- looks like today, because many of them are startups. And and to, to, to just one more thing, I want to say is that uh, have we learned everything? Uh, not not yet. We're, I, I expect us to make even more mistakes uh, for the rest of two thousand and seventeen and maybe into eighteen easily before we figure out. Uh, what the real best practices are, and there's nothing really stopping uh, these mistakes from being made. No matter what people like me or Nick and others um, talk about, and even if we show a bit of restraint and, and warn people, none of that is going to matter. Uh, I think the train is moving at such a rapid speed uh, that right now uh, this this mechanism is is seen as as a low barrier, as a low entry. Uh, point of raising money and, and, and then everybody is rushing to it.
0: So to wrap up, what particular tokens or networks are you most excited about?
1: I, I could, I mean, I could share like, again, a lot of them to tying back to token summit. Um, a lot of them, the, the founders of the projects will be speaking at token summit. So for anyone that's interested, um, in hearing directly from these people, um, I think, you know, token summit would be a good event. And again, to me, the people behind these projects are much more important than any idea that anyone has. And so a few examples, one, you know, I discussed earlier um, Augur. Um, Augur is a decentralized prediction market um, that they actually did one of the, the first um, crowd sales uh, several years ago and have been quietly uh, building since. And I think a lot of people are wondering you know what what is going on, um, but I think i 'm really excited about what they are going to be bringing to market um, in the next you know six to twelve months
0: and William, what about
2: you well i 'll mention the ones that I own, so I have to make that disclaimer. Uh, the ones that I like that I own are include c uh, r and storage for uh, Cloud storage uh, I own, and I like Steam, which is decentralized content uh, with users being able to earn based on their attention. Uh, I like economy economy uh, because they are going to be uh, a fund a management platform basically they 're going to allow fund managers to to manage a portfolio of cryptocurrency uh, tokens uh, very easily, and I like Ethereum obviously uh, because uh, they, they are a new decentralized uh, platform for writing uh, applications, and I like Bitcoin. I also own Bitcoin because they are the backbone uh, currency of uh, uh, of this new world. Um, I mean, there are others uh, that that uh, that have some uh, some some emerging models. Uh, uh, I'm very intrigued to see what happens with the reputation uh, markets. Uh, with uh, Gnosis and uh, Augur and specifically. And and then uh, I continue to be amazed by uh, how many new ones uh, uh, are, are, are being created on, on a daily and weekly basis.
0: Yeah, so we'll see by the end of the year kind of which ones have taken off. Um, so where can people learn more about you and get in touch with you?
2: So for me, William, uh, I write on a regular basis on my blog, which is at uh, startupmanagement.org/blog, and uh, and that's really where uh, my thought leadership is is being published. And Nick, uh,
1: best to find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm quite active, and will certainly if you tweet me, I'll, I'll get back to you. My uh, Twitter handle is ntmoney.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you, Laura.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks everyone for joining us today. Before you switch off this podcast, don't forget, go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained. Let me know who you are and what you want to see in the show. If you're interested in learning more about William and Nick, check out the show notes, which are available on my Forbes page, forbes.com slash sites slash Laura Shin. Thanks so much for tuning in to Unchained, which comes out every other Tuesday. And please share the podcast with friends and on social media. And also remember to review, rate, and subscribe to it in iTunes or your preferred platform. Thanks again for listening.